0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? um, You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dr. Matt Bernico.
1: And I'm your other co-host, back from last week. Uh, and also, your other doctor, Dean Detloff.
0: I don't know why, but lately I'm just feeling like I really need to le- lean into being a doctor. <laughs> I think I've tried to, uh, I've tried to hide it. I've tried to put it under a bushel. But these days, I need to let everyone know. <laughs> I, listen, I can't write you any prescriptions, but I can tell you to go read Heidegger. I wouldn't tell you <laughs> that though. Don't worry, I
1: would never, I would never say that to you. That's a bad prescription. <laughs> <And> <laughs> That's the one that makes you more sick. One of my favorite. Uh, Man, the podcast is already off the rails, but it's fine. One of my favorite Heidegger things. (laughs) Um, This podcast is not about Heidegger, but uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, the great German Marxist that everybody knows and loves, he famously hated Heidegger without ever having read him, which I think is amazing. And he and Bertolt Brecht, there's a story where they were going to create a reading group with the sole purpose of... uh, I read this in a, a biography... Um, The purpose was the destruction of Martin Heidegger. That was the reading group. And I thought that was (laughs) extremely funny. Yeah, they did not get around to it, sadly. But man, what a thing that would have been to read. Yeah, for real. I would have signed up for that in a minute. (laughs) Um,
0: That's amazing. All right. We got a lot of stuff to get into in this episode, but I think I want to take the first three minutes and only three minutes to talk about the new issue of G's magazine. I'm so sorry. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I just I just feel like this is not what people are coming here for, but this is what you're going to get whether you like it or not. <laughs> That's what people are coming here for, that energy. That's right. You know, and we should lean into that more. I'm a doctor after all. And this is this is why I'm prescribing you.
1: Sometimes you don't you don't know the pills that you need to take. That's why you go to the doctor. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. We were talking about G's a few weeks ago and how great it is, and uh, they came out with another banger, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I have a a really short essay in there about the Zapatista Air Force of paper airplanes, which is great. And uh, Dean has an incredible interview in there with Margaret Randall, who we've had on the show before, and I really want everyone to go read it. It's very cool. Um, also, man, there is some other really cool things in here too that I don't think I would have ever considered as a person ever in my life um lots of so the issue is about crafting, which is a cool um idea, but there's a lot of really good pieces in there about um the ways that i mean crafting is a really sort of like intimate thing, and the ways that we kind of interpret it um can be really interesting. There's a piece in there from uh, Julia DeBoer, who is uh, a person who I've met in real life, which is great, uh, about knitting. And I love it. It's great. Um, so much good stuff in this magazine. Dean, what do you think about
1: it? You were yeah. you were kind of uh, involved in the production, so maybe you're biased, but what do you think? <laughs> uh, I was also going to mention the Julia piece, actually, also just because I know her, I guess. So it was really fun because I didn't know that she had even submitted, so it was a surprise to me to... Yeah. What she had to write. That was really cool. Um, it's a great piece about knitting and body positivity and like what it's like to make your own clothes and how cool that is. So, extremely yeah. neat. Um, yeah, lots of cool stuff. Uh, eventually, I mean, we should just have Lydia and Kateri or somebody on to talk about it soon. Maybe we will, but it is really fun. Uh, I can tell a cool story about this Margaret Randall interview. So, Margaret Randall, for people who don't know, she's an amazing woman. She grew up in the US, she moved to Mexico, then she moved to Cuba. And long story short, she ended up in Nicaragua at the invitation of Ernesto Cardenal because she was a poet and he was a poet. And she worked in the Ministry of Culture in the Sandinista government for a while and has all kinds of wild stories, which she shared on this podcast in the past. You should go listen to that. Anyway, uh, the story—the reason that she's in the uh, this issue—is uh, Lydia, the editor at G's, um, sent out this reminder that we had deadlines coming up, and I had not thought about my section at all um confession time i guess <laughs> and uh, i was like panicking for a minute being like oh my gosh who am i gonna interview it's about crafting i don't do a lot of crafting so i don't even know what to do and i was emailing Margaret randall about something else completely and i was like hey you know a thing or two about crafting don't you <laughs> a person who has written poetry and uh worked with ernesto cardinal and she was totally down to do it uh really quickly And it was great. I'm really proud of how the interview turned out. It was one of those uh, great Holy Spirit connections, I guess, in the end. Um, And also she contributed a poem to the issue, which is really neat, too. It's a great poem. So lots of cool stuff in there. Also, a really good issue, if you want to understand how important it is, that G's is a print magazine. It just looks beautiful. Lots of really cool opportunities to highlight people's craft and what craft is and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you should get it. You should subscribe to G's. This is a great issue to give to your mom. 10 out of 10 crafting issue. Yeah, for sure. It's $14, and uh,
0: there's no better way you could spend $14, I think. This is it. I agree. <laughs> great. Okay, let's talk about something a little bit more grim. Uh, G's is a great uh, a font of uh, life and joy and intrigue, uh, but let me tell you about something that sucks. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Capitalism, Dean. <team. laughs> So, listen, if you have participated in any Verso or Haymarket book sale in the last three or four or five years, you'll know all all about capitalism. You've got finance capitalism. You've got cognitive capitalism. There's fossil capitalism and cannibal capitalism. There's disaster capitalism. Are there any? What are there any other capitalisms I'm missing? I mean, I'm sure there's probably a lot, right? Oh
1: yeah, there's extractive capitalism. There is. Uh, there's also all kinds of scenes right now: the capitalist scene, the Cthulhu scene, oh, that right. all have something to do with capitalism. It's uh, it's a growing pile of terms for sure. People love it. People love naming their book. Something capitalism. They just, they can't,
0: audiences can't get enough of it, and uh, authors can't stop writing it. Okay, okay, wait,
1: if you you had to name
0: a capitalism, what would yours be, Matt? Oh, no, you can't put me on the spot like that. I just did it, so it looks like I can. uh, Doctor to doctor. No, I would never do that. I would never write a book called Something Capitalism. I would Mm. let somebody else do it for sure. Mine Um, would be Satan
1: Capitalism.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. That's good. Satanic Capitalism. Mm-hmm. um that's good i like that a lot um nope so i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna participate in this one yeah okay uh, i'm the, that's your choice i'm this. the doctor and i'm i'm the doctor and i'm saying that this is too much <laughs> <laughs> i need less <laughs> um all right but let's let's talk about this though uh, there's all these types of capitalism floating around up there but let's talk about one that maybe you haven't heard of or if you have that well then that's cool for you but maybe some people haven't <laughs> Um, we're, we're going to talk about one that's not been in a recent Verso book sale, and that's Monopoly Capitalism. Um, that's right, folks, this week we are starting up a new and probably short-lived series on Paul Baran and Paul Sweezy, two pauls um, book about, uh, Monopoly Capital, which came out in 1966, so it definitely, uh, ahead of the curve, uh, on naming books, um, in this way, <laughs> You might recognize Baran and Sweezy as the guys of Monthly Review. I'm just kidding. You definitely don't recognize them at all, right? <laughs> These are two guys you've never heard of. These just two the guys named Paul? Yeah, there's no way you've heard of them. I mean, if you have, you're you're definitely cool. You get it. You uh, you get more cool points than the rest of us. But, like, no one's heard of them. But they are founders of the Monthly Review, which is our second favorite magazine behind G's. Uh, that's the hierarchy. G's is number one. Monthly Review is number two. <laughs> and those are um, the only two you need. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But beyond month review, they're also really well-known for their, I mean, what's groundbreaking work, I think, uh, about the ins and outs of monopoly capitalism. Uh, I think it's a pretty big deal, actually, this book. Um, I think if you read stuff about political economy, you definitely run into their names and some of these ideas. But um, this is a book that I've not read until very recently. Um, it's a pretty big and chunky book, and we're going to split it up a bit. So in this episode, we're going to walk through, like, the first half-ish of the book, and then um, next week, we're going to talk about some of, like, the later half, but we're also going to kind of make some connections that go beyond the book itself. Um, I don't know. Dean, what else do we need to say about Monopoly Capital before we get into it? Let's
1: see. Sure. Maybe we can set up the book and the authors a little bit. Um, So Paul Baran, interesting guy. He came from uh, Eastern Europe. I forget where. Somewhere in the Soviet Union. Uh, He did all this work in the United States. Paul Sweezy, an interesting guy, also in the U.S. Um, And the two of them did all this pretty uh, original work um, in a Marxist tradition, but also in a kind of unique Marxist tradition, which we'll talk more about on this podcast. Uh, If you look at the monthly review today, if you got your great issue um, of the month, In the mailbox, you'll see that the tagline is something like... It's like an independent socialist magazine or something like that. um, And that comes through for sure. Uh, They were really interested in development economics and kind of global systems. And they made original contributions to sort of like how we understand imperialism. How we understand how capitalism in the United States in particular kind of has its hands all over the rest of the world. Which is pretty unique, and so you're getting a sort of, I think, one of the most powerful economic analyses from within the United States about the United States. And just to maybe add some street cred to that, uh, this book, Monopoly Capital, is dedicated to Che Guevara. And Che, in particular, was a reader of Paul Baran, um, specifically. And uh, Sweezy and uh, this other guy, Leo Huberman, another monthly review person, they went to Cuba shortly after the revolution and toured around. So, like, they're people who are actively involved in struggles, political struggles. And uh, even though they're academics, even though this book is an extremely hard economics book, um, it's also a book that, like, people who are actually doing stuff in the world, like Che Guevara are reading and thinking about and paying attention to. So, I think that it maybe is just a one kind of good way to contextualize what they're up to, right? There are people in the US thinking about the the economic realities of the US but in touch with how that impinges on people all all across the world. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. So, we'll get into the specifics of like what monopoly
0: capitalism is in just one minute, but before that, I think it's actually worth contextualizing I I think why we're going to talk about this book at all (laughs) um capitalism is a system that uh mercilessly exploits not just people in our own country but people like all the way up and down the supply chain um that is true (laughs) and should not be a surprise to you if you listen to this podcast um but i think also because we're christians it's definitely worth figuring this kind of thing out so that we can i don't know better love people and um and uh, maybe fight back against uh, the ways that capitalism exploits all of these people. Um, I, I think that, like, you know, uh, Christians in general, they they leave things uh, up to—things are too vague. <laughs> when, mm-hmm. um, when we start reading the Bible, we hear about all these kinds of people that we should care about and that we should uh, consider directly. And um, I think it would do everyone a whole lot of good if we figured out, you know who it is these people that we are supposed to be loving are and then we figure out who's hurting them and then we find ways to like sort of like thwart that right um so i think in this episode we're going to talk about a lot of like political economy types of jargon but we're doing it to get a better understanding of the ways that capital hurts people and maybe arrive at some kind of deeper understanding about the ways that um i don't know what we can do about it or like what ways we can push back um because you definitely
1: can't push back if you you don't know how it works. Exactly. You know, the other day, um, I was on a walk with my wife, Emily, I was kind of complaining to her about how hard it is to understand economics, because I am not an economist, I didn't go to economics school, and I've had to figure all this stuff out on my own. And you never really know if you're getting it quite right. And I was trying to also figure out a problem in this book that I like, some parts of a problem just were not connecting. So I was explaining it to her and trying to see like, maybe she could see something I didn't see or You know, maybe she could, like, help me think it through and so on. And uh, she was like, why do you want to understand this? Like, what's the point (laughs) of really, like, figuring it out? And I was like, that's a great question. (laughs) And uh, I think, like, what I said to her, which I think is true, is the way that you understand a problem really changes the way that you comport yourself or kind of direct yourself toward that problem, right? Like, if you think that capitalism is really, at the end of the day, about a bunch of mean people doing mean stuff... Or like stupid people not thinking about stuff, or you know these kind of really basic um, intuitions that maybe we have, but like they kind of stay at that intuitive level. Then it becomes really demotivating and really disempowering, or at least it did for me in my own life. To be like, uh, I hate all these nasty capitalists. You know, <laughs> like it really bugs me. Uh, but there's nothing I can do about it, so it just makes you crabby or made, made me crabby. The more you learn about it, the more you're also able to think about. What are kind of the nodes of power in that system? Why do certain things happen? You know, you see like a a headline from the Wall Street Journal or like the Joe Biden administration or something go by explaining something about the economy and you can say, well, that's probably not exactly right. (laughs) And like being able to know why and how to intervene in that conversation. I mean, you know, it's a small consolation prize to be like, I know better. Uh, But it's actually a pretty empowering thing to be like, I know better in such a way that I could maybe organize more effectively or like you know, relate myself to a, an international struggle more directly or something like that. So I do think it makes a difference that we take the time to really figure out what monopoly capital is, why it works the way that it does, so that we can figure out how to do something different.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you got to know the problem before you can act against it in some way, um, for sure. All right. Well, let's talk about the problem. Um, let's let's take a meandering road towards talking about the problem. <laughs> um <laughs> This book is called Monopoly Capital. It was written in 1966. And um, I think w- one way to think about the book, there's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of like explanation. But I think it's like a counter story um, to what we know about capitalism and how it works. Um, here's here's one way we could we could start going about it, right? So capitalism is like a big thing, a big network of systems, I guess, that like passes around capital and money. Right, we know that to be true, but beyond that, it's also like a story that we tell ourselves about how the world works in particular. So the usual capitalist story goes something like this: right, through hard work and determination, a uh, capitalist grows their business from the ground up. You know, they hire workers, they buy machines, they produce goods, they make profits, and then at the end of the day, they take those profits um, and then they use them to produce better products more efficiently and pay their workers more and you know all these kinds of things. But um, what encourages capitalists to do all of this is competition with other capitalists. Or this is the story, right? This is not the truth. We'll get there in a second. (laughs) Um, And this competition is good for consumers and it's good for everybody because it pushes capitalists to drive down prices to beat out their competitors, right? So it creates the story of capitalism is one where through competition, capitalists are always kind of getting better because they're always trying to beat out somebody else who's always trying to underline them, right? Since, um, since at the end of the day, what really matters is that you know who has the most customers and who's buying the most, right? Who's creating the most profits? You know, it's it's um, the, the assumption is that like the market will just kind of work itself out to give us the best things that people actually are demanding, right? And you know, there's something to this story historically. Maybe, um, you know, if it was 1860, <laughs> whatever, maybe some of this would be a little bit true. Um, but what Baran and Sweezy are here to tell us in their book is that it's not true now. It wasn't true in 1966. It is definitely not true now that people are competing in this particular type of way. So in Baran and Sweezy's work, they consider the the big corporation as like the primary unit in our current capitalist paradigm, um, which they uh pull out against like the robber barons or like the 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 John D Rockefeller's or whatever um right a big corporation is different than those types of figures a big corporation acts differently it produces differently and it uh does not compete which is very different than some of these older types of um uh of like businesses and uh capitalist entities i, I don't know dean that's a that's a way to start this conversation off what what do you think
1: i think it's good um And also, this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, maybe, but worth mentioning now. Brian and Sweezy are intervening in the way that capitalists tell the story about capitalism, right? That capitalism has these competitive kind of relationships, like you were saying, Matt, uh, kind of rises everybody over time. But they're also intervening in a Marxist story about capitalism. Uh, Marx had a lot of things to say about the competitive world of capitalism that he was living through in the 1800s. And uh Brand and Sweezy say, Marx got it right. Everything he said about the capitalism that he was living in, it was pretty much uh, true. He had it right on. But uh, capitalism has changed since the 1800s, and it has driven further and further toward a, a monopoly stage in which major ways that the capitalist economy work um, have also changed in significant ways. So it's, a, it's an update also to Marx's theory of capitalism, which is very interesting, Um, And it's cool to actually see Marxists take that seriously. Sometimes you get a criticism of Marxism that it's like, well, you know, Marx uh, couldn't couldn't have gotten everything right in the 1800s because, like, we have computers and airplanes and, you know, cars and whatever else now. And so there's no way that he could be right. And uh, at the end of the day, like, it's partly true. There's no way that Marx could have anticipated every single thing that would have happened in the future. But Marx did lay out a certain kind of way of thinking about the economy that allowed Marxists in the future to think through what those changes were, um, account for them, and do it in a a Marxist kind of way. So it's neat to see Byron and Sweezy doing that by tracing what is the big shift from that robber baron era of capitalism to what they call monopoly capital. So it's helpful to kind of have that story too, right? That they're trying to uh, expand on the way that kind of Marx taught us to think about the economy, which is to say, not just repeating whatever Marx said.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, it's a a disagreement with Marx or it's a different story. It's an intervention into, like, the Marxist story, but it's in, like, a pretty Marxist way, I think. Yeah. Um, You know, something I was thinking of... uh, So the the whole first chapter is kind of explaining, like, what a corporation is or or how big corporations are different than, like, the previous robber baron age. And I... um, you know lots of high-minded distinctions lots of like um academic rigor for sure but i kept thinking of this um this utah phillips story which is uh far less academic but i think just as true in some different ways <laughs> uh utah phillips is is uh telling this story about um how uh in the old days of being like a you know traveling iww guy it was really easy to know like who the bad guys were in your life because like you'd be mining in one direction, you know, you'd be like digging into the earth literally while um while while your boss was building like a mansion next door to you or something. And um you know, that's that's uh, such an important distinction that um that doesn't hold up, right? It's it's harder to know who the uh, who the bosses are or how they work or like who is it that you know, your work is really beholden to or whose profits you're actually making. Uh, not as simple as it used to be, I guess, uh, if if Utah Phillips is to believe, be believed, and uh, I do.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, worth mentioning, too. So the big corporation for them, um, you can kind of imagine all kinds of different uh, heavy industries, big industries, big corporations in the 60s. Uh, but worth mentioning also that the big corporation is typically multinational and global in scope or kind of globalizing, especially in the 1960s. And even since the time this book was written, there's been a ton more in the tradition of this form of analysis of monopoly capitalism, especially done at the monthly review. That's kind of like what put that magazine, I don't know, on the map or like it's the tradition that it it started. Um, and there's a lot of great work kind of continuing to update this too. So it's an ongoing conversation to think through that problem of like, (laughs) if Utah Phillips thought it was hard to figure out who the bosses are, man, try to figure (laughs) out like (laughs) who owns a global multinational company today. You're going to have a hard time.
0: Yeah, for sure. You're gonna have a hard time, but, uh, it's probably Nestle though. Is probably who is, who it is. It's probably Nestle. (laughs) It's probably Pepsi. I don't know. One of those. I I don't know. Yeah, exactly. GE, um, uh, I don't know. It It is, it's a pretty helpful book too, I think. Um, sorry, I keep like finding ways to not talk about the next thing, but <laughs> I think it's a really helpful book because like, uh, I don't know, I'm a person that pays a lot of attention to a handful of fast food corporations. Like that's my job is to pay attention to them. And, uh, this book I think is actually really illustrative of the way that they work. At least I found it to be pretty true. Um, so I don't know. It's definitely a discourse that I'm interested in knowing more about and I think is actually really helpful if you're going to be like a sort of anti-capitalist person in the world. Um, OK, so corporations, they're um, they are global, they're international corporations. It's your Nestle's, it's your McDonald's, it's your GE's or whatever. Um, But what what about the other word, uh, monopoly? That's a pretty important piece because we, we've just named three or four different corporations. You might be thinking – how could there be a monopoly with there being three or four corporations? So here's a quote from John Bellamy Foster, the, uh, the current editor of the Monthly Review. Uh, the notorious JBF, out. as we like to call <laughs> him. <laughs> the notorious JBF. Um, he, uh, this is a, from a Review of the Month from 2011, so it's a bit dated, but not in any important way. Um, okay, so this is what JBF says about Monopoly. He says, when we use the term monopoly, we do not use it in the very restrictive sense to refer to a market with a single seller. Monopoly in this sense is practically non-existent. Instead, we employ it as it has often been used in economics to refer to firms with sufficient market power to influence the price, output, and investment of an industry, thus exercising monopoly power and to limit new competitors entering the industry, even if there are high profits. These firms generally operate in markets where a handful of firms dominate production and can determine the price for the product. Okay. So there it is. Um, we've got corporations. That's like the main sort of unit that we're talking about here, but they have a particular type of power and that power is called monopoly. Not in the, not in the game sense where you own all the properties, <laughs> but <laughs> in the, in the sense where, um, these corporations have a particular type of power, sufficient market power, to like set the price and the output and like investments of entire industries, right? So it's monopoly, not in like the exact use of the word, but like in the approximate use of the word. It's like you know, an almost monopoly. Monopoly insofar as it really matters, right? The it's it's like, um, well, McDonald's and Burger King are two competing corporations. But, I mean, they're not competing in the grand sense. They're, they're both setting really similar prices for their, for their products, right? And they're paying really similar prices for their labor. So, you know, they have monopoly power over their, um, uh, over their like, sector because they can influence the price directly. Um, and I think that's, that's the important piece here, right? So this is the type of
1: uh, corporation we're talking about here. The, those that have the ability to set prices. Right, and you could think of lots of other monopolies that affect your own life, like probably your internet bill or your cell phone bill or whatever you know there's lots of uh different kinds of ways that um all those prices you know you might try to get a good deal here or there, but at the end of the day, they kind of even out <laughs> depending on who you get or like um you know you could try to find like a smaller fledgling company that's kind of trying to undercut all the other big companies, but There's lots of ways that they, too, have uh, uh, challenges. And and eventually, in some ways, the goal of a small company is to get bought up by a monopoly company anyway. That's like when you made it. So there's kind of, you know, lots of ways that most of us interact with these big monopolies one way or another. And again, monopoly is not the one single company. You can have a few companies. But the point is that they're all kind of in on the game. Uh, They're all all, uh, setting the same terms for the market.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, this is
1: a dumb, a dumb ano-
0: analogy or a dumb example, but I'm going to say it anyways. You know, during the pandemic, um, when we couldn't go anywhere, um, I mean, it's, it still is during the pandemic, but like in a different <laughs> yeah. stage, I suppose. <laughs> but anyways, um, my family, we ended up um, doing a lot, of, a lot of Postmates and we would like order in food because it was like the only interesting thing in our life. Um but I remember, like, there's this period. I'm sure it still exists, honestly. But, like, on Postmates, there'd be all these, like, really weird names of restaurants popping up that I've never heard of in my entire life. Like, you know, there'd be, like, some kind of, like, crazy taco restaurant. And then it would – and, like, I've never heard of it. And it's, like, how could there be a new restaurant that I've never heard of? It's, like, you know, whatever. We're all locked down. And then I would look up the – um <laughs> I would look up the – uh the address and it would actually just be like an ihop or something Mm -hmm. so it's just like you know that that's um i think a great example though of the ways that corporations work right like lots of brands but fundamentally like one thing sort of behind it Mm -hmm. um pretty fundamentally different though i think than like in, in the past
1: right so uh let's talk maybe a little bit about how these function. so corporations are different from tycoons robber barons in the 18th century uh, like we said, instead of having you know your rich boss who's building a mansion next to your mine uh, with a big bank account um, running the show, Baran and Suezy spend a lot of time talking about the ways that company men, as they call it, uh, who are subsumed by the corporation itself, sort of run the show through boards of directors, investors, outside interest groups, and so on. And it's also very interesting because, like. The they do almost like an economic psychology in this book of like the typical person in the 60s who worked for a corporation. And I think probably that like type figure is a little bit different now, especially in the age of like tech bros and all that kind of stuff, but not actually extremely different. Um, It felt to me like a lot of what they're saying holds up. Um, Anyway, here's something that they say that helps us parse it out a little bit more. The real capitalist today is not the individual businessman, but the corporation. What the businessman does in his private life, his attitude toward the getting and spending of his personal income, these are essentially irrelevant to the functioning of the system. What counts is what he does in the company life and his attitude toward the getting and spending of the company's income, and here there can be no doubt that the making and accumulating of profits hold as dominant a position today as they ever did. Over the portals of the magnificent office buildings of today, as on the wall of the modest counting house a century or two ago, it would be equally appropriate to find engraved the motto "Accumulate, accumulate." That is Moses and the Prophets, a classic line from Marx. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the the key, right, is that like we've kind of uh, even though we still have this ideology that it's really businessmen or business women or business they them's I don't know kind of uh, out there um, trying to to get theirs and and do their thing and you know spend their investment and income and all that kind of stuff, enjoying their investment uh, and growing it. The real key is these kind of weird collective operations of capital accumulation. And in fact, it's better for somebody to be a good functionary in that sort of system than it is for them to be like a, a rogue entrepreneur or something like that. And that's still true today, even though we still have these kind of celebrity capitalists like Elon Musk or, I don't know, like like people on Shark Tank or something, these investment uh, entrepreneurs. Um, at the end of the day, it really comes down to these huge corporations uh, where you have lots and lots and lots of people doing all kinds of analysis trying to make the corporation make money. And that's the key, right? How do you kind of uh, ironically build a collective private, privatization scheme, right? <laughs> like you're, uh, despite all the story of individualism and capitalism, and there's lots of it, um, it's a huge collective effort to get all that profit exploited, uh, profit subsumed into one corporation. And that is a really fascinating sort of thing that they note, right, that this is a, a collective process of capitalists working together uh, to build that kind of power. That's right. And as we'll see in a
0: few minutes, um, you know, it's, it's accumulate, accumulate like the line from Marx. But it's also like um, with the provision that it's accumulate so that you can even accumulate more tomorrow. Right. <laughs> it's like a particular type of accumulation. Where um, it's not just about like a breakneck, make as much money as you possibly can. But it's like, how can you create this whole scaffold so that you can make money from here to the end of time? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's it's about making like a sustainable kind of uh, right. uh, Yeah. Profit generation strategy.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, so big corporations, they make money. And what makes them a monopoly is that they can set a price for something. And they have, you know, kind of a, a command over the market. Something I found really interesting in this piece, we don't have to talk about it that much, but they, uh, Brand Sweezy, talk about how, um, you know, in a particular, like, market niche or whatever, corporations will kind of take turns being price leaders. Um, You know, one person can kind of, like, drop their price low and undercut everybody, but that means, like, the other people will end up following them, and they'll kind of, like, do this in this, like, sort of cyclical way. But what's important is that, like, a corporation – you know, they're not setting a price based on the, you know, labor theory of value or something or like how much X, Y, Z, you know, how much something costs. They're doing it because like they're trying to make a, you know, a particular profit. And uh, that's the part I think that people don't kind of recognize is that, uh, you know, the price that you're paying is not it's not grounded in reality. It's really aleatory. It's kind of floating and it's just like it, something costs what it does because a corporation says it costs this much. And of course, they'll take into account all kinds of things like the rising cost of labor or like a a scarcity of a particular thing. But still, I mean, like, you know, what makes a corporation like uh, a corporation (laughs) in this particular sense is that they can set the price to, to be what they want it to be.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, too, the way that they talk about it, because they say it doesn't really require a bunch of corporations getting in a room in a cartel sort of fashion to decide what the price is. Instead, it's because of that, what we were just talking about, that kind of um, uh, desire to have the sustainable profit scheme that leads them to not undercut each other so quickly because what they don't want to do is initiate a price war. So the idea is uh, they call it tacit collusion, which is a really fun term. Uh the idea is like let's say there are a few different corporations and um you know they're all kind of in the same industry like I don't know steel let's say that's like a example they choose or like the cigarette industry was a big 60s example that they use a lot of the time too um one of those big companies uh decides that it wants to undercut at the competitors so all of a sudden they make their cigarettes cheaper Uh, What Brandon Sweezy say is that is actually an extremely risky and potentially suicidal move, because if all the other corporations start kind of undercutting each other until people get to the barest, slim profit margin they can get to um, because of that monopoly power, because they're so huge, uh, the chances are, you know, one of them is going to be able to survive and everybody else is going to go under And nobody really wants to do that because the goal is really to sustainably continue to generate profit, which is way easier to do if everybody's kind of on the same page and not trying to outgun each other. And they even show some interesting examples of companies who will sometimes raise a price, and then if everybody else raises their prices too, they'll keep it. But if nobody else follows them, then they'll rescind the price raise and they'll go back down. So like I said, there's this kind of tacit collusion where all these monopolies are trying to avoid a price war, which is actually the the opposite of what you'd, ex- you'd expect if you thought that capitalism was this kind of cutthroat competition where everybody's fighting each other and then it benefits the consumer and everybody else in the end because you're always getting the cheapest price for the best product. Uh, on the contrary, there's a, a motivation among corporations to sort of keep a level um, of growth that's really sustainable. There's a kind of conservative or risk-averse uh, logic built into being a corporation. And I think that is actually really helpful to understand. It's something I would never have thought about if I haven't, hadn't read this book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's not a whole lot of competition in the capitalist uh, economy right here. And I think that's a pretty important piece to kind of like <laughs> put in here. Um, okay. Dean, this is what I want you to talk about because I feel like you're probably better <laughs> than I am at this point. So In uh, Monopoly Capital, right, all these corporations, they're not really competing. They're kind of, like, tacitly colluding with one another, like you said, um, to make a whole lot of money sustainably for the foreseeable future. So then what that means is that they have a lot of profits, and the profits are increasing, and they've got so much money. What are they going to do with all this, like, surplus profit?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Um, and, uh, they spend a lot of time talking about exactly that in the book. The majority of the book is really about what do capitalists do? Uh, what does the, the capitalist economy do with all the profit that they make? And in fact, having so much, uh, what they call surplus, which is profits, but lots of other stuff too. Having so much of that is a huge problem. In fact, it creates all these other economic problems and maybe we'll talk about that more in the next episode because it's kind of a huge topic. Um, but they do come up with this really interesting kind of um, uh, expansion of the Marxist story. So, in the same way, we're just saying that they build on uh, the Marxist tradition to say, okay, maybe there was a time where there was this hyper competitive capitalism in the 1800s, for sure, and Marx figured it out. Uh, but now we've moved to this monopolistic stage where, you know, instead we have this tacit collusion of big companies. Another change that that makes to Marxism is a change in uh, how we talk about sort of the the rate of profits. And I'll just read what they have to say here, and then we'll talk about why why this uh, kind of jargony paragraph matters. So they say, The whole motivation of cost reduction is to increase profits, and the monopolistic structure of markets enables the corporations to appropriate the lion's share of the fruits of increasing productivity directly in the form of higher profits. Don't worry, it's going to make sense in a minute. This means that under monopoly capitalism, declining costs imply continuously widening profit margins. And continuously widening profit margins in turn imply aggregate profits, which rise not only absolutely, but as a share of national product. We can formulate as a law of monopoly capitalism that the surplus tends to rise, both absolutely and relatively, as the system develops. So here's what they're trying to say. In capitalism, one thing that definitely didn't change is you always want to try to reduce your cost wherever you can, your production cost. Uh, if you think of yourself as a businessman, the example we always use on the show, it, for some reason, is you have a big shoe factory. Um, let's say you're a capitalist, you own a shoe factory. Uh, to get more money out of that factory, you have to figure out how to lower the costs going into what it takes to make a shoe so that when you sell it for the price you sell it at the market, there's a bigger profit, a bigger margin, a bigger gap between the cost you put into the shoe and the price, the money you're going to get for the shoe, right? That's kind of the basic economic piece. And there's lots of ways to cut costs. You can cut costs by having a more efficient shoe factory. You can cut costs by getting cheaper shoe materials. Uh, one of the biggest ways that capitalists cut cost is by screwing over workers because labor and people uh, are also factored into production, right? Labor has a cost. So they want to reduce costs uh, for labor by either making you work longer, reducing your wages, making you work less even, lots of different ways that they try to lower labor costs. So they're going on and on, Brandon Sweezy here, about lowering costs and how important that is. What they say is uh, if you keep declining those costs, you're going to keep on raising those profit margins and uh, Baran and Sweezy say because it's a monopolistic structure where there's this kind of tacit collusion between all the big companies, reducing costs isn't really a like competitive warring structure anymore. You know, In the 1800s, you want to reduce your costs so you can put somebody else out of business. In monopoly capitalism, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. If you discover a way to make your shoes cheaper, then all the other shoe people are going to do the same thing, and their shoes will cost the same, and it'll all kind of pan out the same way. Uh, So the catch, though, for Brandon Sweezy is that means that profits are pretty much always going up. And that's a huge departure from Marxism uh, in Marx's terms and Marx's day, because Marx had kind of an opposite uh, idea that, in fact, because of competition, there would be a tendency of the rate of profit to fall because someone would outdo you or you'd have a big problem in the production process and your profits would eventually kind of plateau and then go down. And so what Brandon and Sweezy are saying is really a pretty radical thing in Marxist economics, which is, uh, again, Marx got everything right, but capitalism has changed. And so that means that now there's this opposite tendency in our economy where the profit rate keeps on going up and up and up and it doesn't tend to fall. And it keeps going up precisely because there's not that kind of cutthroat competition in capitalism anymore. So if this all sounds like, I don't know, boring or economic nerd talk or whatever, maybe one way of thinking about it is like, if you look up the sort of uh, ratios between um, what a worker makes to what a boss makes, in like the last hundred years, it has increased by like 200% or something absolutely bonkers. So like, if the rate of, Like, let's say you're like a person in a factory and you what you make is like one to 24 compared to the boss, like the boss makes 24 times more than an average worker. Like, I think that was the case in like the 40s or 50s or something. Now it's like they make like, you know, 260 percent more than the average worker and the CEO is going to make even more exponentially than that. Right. Right. So it's widening that gap, even not only between profits, but also the gap between what those profits get invested into. Guess what? They do not go back to workers. (laughs) The value that keeps on going up does not come back to the people who create the value, uh, the working people without which there would be nothing to sell, nothing to profit off of. And that's a huge key to Brandon Sweezy's analysis that Um, that exploitation that Marx identified, that has not changed. And in fact, the rate of exploitation goes higher and higher and higher in monopoly capitalism.
0: If you want to see an example of that in practice, you can go to the AFL-CIO website, the Big Labor Federation. Uh, They have a thing on their website. It's called uh, PayWatch, I think is what it's called. Yes. aflcioorg slash PayWatch. And you can go look up by corporation the, um, like, what they paid their CEO in uh 2021 and how much more that is than the average worker. So like for example um Brian Nickel who is the CEO of Chipotle was paid 1131 times more than the average worker in 2021, right? And in 2022, it's going to be more than that. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but it's cool, uh it's not cool. It's depressing you can track it and uh that seems somehow important but um <laughs> it's it's interesting i mean the afl cio their messaging around it is not like what brand Sweezy are saying they're saying that like they're getting paid more because of you know greedy executives at the top which is true in a certain sense but like you know even if they weren't greedy this would still happen <laughs> you know um it doesn't matter if they're greedy or not this is the way that capitalism works fundamentally uh, You know, let's see. There's so much more to say about this at all, but the, the surplus thing is really important. But, like, the monopoly characteristic is, I think, what makes this kind of set apart from the the capitalist story that people have told in the past. And something else that's pretty important in it is the way that it actually weakens labor's power. Um, So, like, for example, you know, whatever. You and your, you and your coworkers can organize. You can go on strike, and you can win higher wages, and that's really good for you, and you should definitely do that. Absolutely. (laughs) But since corporations hold the power to like set prices and like you were just saying, Dean, the, the, um, you know, the rate of profit doesn't, doesn't fall like you would think or like Marx would think Um, the, there, there are like limits to how transformative just fighting for higher wages could be. So like workers can win higher wages through collective bargaining and going on strike and having a union and all that kind of stuff. And it's good. And we love it for sure. But it's also unlikely that workers will actually ever see the like, you know, the they won't actually see those profits on their check because, you know, corporations will just like raise the prices to offset those uh, rates they would give workers. And even if they didn't do that, it wouldn't really matter. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just like uh, be, because the uh, the rate of profit doesn't fall, it doesn't really matter. Um Corporations could 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 pay far more than they do, but they don't as like more of a matter of principle than economics. I think that's really frustrating.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a huge point. And I think a good way to build uh, appropriate kinds of class resentment, (laughs) like at the end of the day, like if you work for a big company, that company absolutely can pay you a lot more than you're being paid now. And they just choose not to. And the weird thing is, and something we'll talk about more maybe the next episode about absorption of surplus, too. They don't even necessarily dump that capital back into uh, the paychecks of CEOs. I mean they dump tons of it into that, but they also sure. dump it back into like advertising and kind of looking for ways to reinvest in the company in ways that may or may not in fact end up being productive. But the idea is like they're trying really hard just to do something with the surplus that they have because they have so much of it. Like the mm-hmm. big point that Baran and Sweezy make is that there's so much surplus that the capitalist class literally does not know what to do with it. And they were saying this in the 1960s. Uh, guess what? They have even more now, <laughs> and they still don't know what to do with it. And that is so frustrating because, like, you know, first of all, the people who work for them are not the people, like you said, Matt, getting the benefits of it, even though they they could and the company wouldn't miss it, wouldn't even notice uh, but also, like, you know, we in capitalist societies live in places where people are homeless and going to bread lines and food kitchens and all that kind of stuff. And like they're all obviously not investing in those kind of structures either. So we live in this situation where the surplus is always rising. Capitalists are always getting more money. Wealth is getting generated more and more and more. And it is just not rising all the boats uh, along with that big tide of surplus the way that capitalists like to pretend. Um, instead, uh, more often than not, the, the capitalists are, you know, getting better and better boats <laughs> somewhere else, like somewhere <laughs> with that you can't be. And they're like forcing you to stay in the bay <laughs> or whatever. I don't know how the metaphor works, but uh, it's uh, it's good to sort of recognize that at the end of the day, like, They don't pay you because they don't want to. Mm -hmm.
0: Because to pay you what you're asking them would be like ceding power to people that aren't them and they they don't like that. I mean, you know, you can see how it is like um, what what appears as an economic problem is like actually extremely ideological as well. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. Um, they don't want to listen to workers because they don't want to listen to workers. Like and that's kind of it. You know, it's not because it's going to put them out of business or whatever. It's because they just don't feel like it. Well. Uh, it is forty seven minutes into this podcast right now and I feel like we should have said this sooner but um they do make a distinction really early on that uh monopoly capital is talking about these like uh these big global corporations rather than just like small businesses too so you know what we're saying here doesn't necessarily apply to all you know to small businesses uh mm-hmm. which have their own sort of set of economic problems and uh things as well but when it comes down to it people your boss can always pay you more They say they can't. They're probably lying.
1: Yeah. We'll see, too, how this all weakens labor power in a more collective way, maybe in the next episode. I feel like it's been good to parse out a a lot of how monopoly capital works internal to corporations or like among big monopolies. But uh, one of the most important parts of the books is is that it talks about how there is, you know, there's there's a whole economy outside of the corporation as well. And uh, all these decisions that are made in monopoly capitalist uh, boardrooms and whatever, um, they have repercussions on national economies and global economies. And there are lots of ways that that kind of bounces back to hurt uh, working people, to hurt their buying power, to lower uh, jobs um, to create rising unemployment is ways to respond to all kinds of problems that having too much money has. So we'll, we'll get into all that later on, but, uh, just to emphasize, like, you know, they do this great analysis of kind of the internal behavior of corporations. And then they also talk about like the external ramifications or consequences of that behavior, which I think is a really exciting thing, but also very complicated. And that's why we're (laughs) giving ourselves more time to understand it. Yeah, totally. Totally.
0: Um, all right, there's actually one more piece of the puzzle here I want to add on, that this is uh, this is kind of going outside the bounds of Brian Sweezy's book and Monopoly Capital uh, itself. But I thought it was actually kind of important, and it does kind of help m- me answer a question I was curious about. <laughs> um, thinking earlier, Dean, about what you're saying, why do you want to answer this question? <laughs> why is this important to you? <laughs> um, this seemed important to me. So something that's kind of missing from this book is like a big conversation about labor. And that seems weird to me. Um, I mean, it comes out in different ways. Like we've talked about in this conversation already about, um, you know, wages and stuff. Um, but it seems like there should be a bigger conversation about labor in this book. And this is maybe like a small piece of me trying to like figure that part of the of, of monopoly capital out. So um, I was uh, doing a bit of research uh, John Bellamy Foster talks about this term and a lot of other like labor economists do quite a bit as well. But uh, there's monopoly on the one hand, right, which means, you know, the power to set prices and kind of affect a particular market, um, you know, to be like a single seller in, in a sense. Right. But there's also this other term called monopsony, which is the inverse. Right. Instead of being a single seller, it means that you're like the single buyer of a particular good. And when people talk about monopsony, they're usually talking about um like the labor market specifically right um uh, so so it's not about um it's not about like buying a particular like um good like unrefined or or something <laughs> it's about buying labor right that you're you that your your global corporation is the single buyer of labor um and i think that was a that, that's that been a helpful idea for me to kind of make some of this makes more sense in my brain because um i don't know i don't want to overlook workers so when people talk about like wages or like working conditions especially when it comes to like low wage jobs uh you might hear people on the right say something like you know go find a different job <laughs> find a, find a job that pays more right is what they'll tell you and uh not only will you hear this among people on the right, but you'll even hear this amongst uh, low, low-wage low workers, right? People who work at McDonald's, but then they go get a job at Burger King because it pays $13 an hour rather than 12 hours an hour or something. Um, and a monopsony, though, is a really important uh, explanatory device here because it's exactly why a worker can't just go find another job. Or if they did find another job, it might not matter all that much so like monopolies a monopsony allows a handful of big corporations to set wages for like basically entire industries so this is exactly why you know whatever you, you see a mcdonald's on one corner that says now hiring 12 dollars an hour and you see a wendy's across the street that says now hiring 13 dollars an hour you know for a wendy's or mcdonald's it doesn't really matter right the 12 or the 13 it doesn't matter to them who cares um whatever <laughs> so industries though like with similar labor pools they can set their wages basically wherever they want to like whatever they think uh will will work uh for their, which is usually the legal minimum right <laughs> right totally it, it is definitely legal minimum um in a lot of places it, you know some places though have like a really like okay for example uh texas the minimum wage is 725 there they don't have they their their legal minimum is the federal legal minimum which is awful though like you know, you see how um, different, like, geographies, like, they deal with that in different ways uh, because of, like, rents and other things like that, right? If you want a pool of low-wage workers in, I don't know, Houston, Texas, you probably have to pay more than $7.25 an hour um, mm-hmm. because there's, like, an external factor weighing on, weighing on it, right? So you might have to pay $13 or 14 or even 15 or 16 Who knows? But, again, it's not like... It's not like the um, the industry itself is like calculating how much that is like, you know, how much the labor is worth. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things um, to the industry itself. Right. It matters to the workers. But it, anyways, this is this is important because um, you see how there's a monopoly not on just one end, but like on, on both ends. Right. <laughs> there's a monopoly in the way that corporations uh, are facing consumers, but also in the way that it faces labor, too um when it comes to this you can kind of see it actually play out pretty i don't know obviously when it comes to like um uh, to like wage growth and productivity so the economic policy institute which is like a pretty it's not like a it's not like a hard it's not a hard left institution in the sense that like you know monthly review is or something <laughs> it's <laughs> it's for liberals it's for liberals they do all kinds of great um economic data for labor unions and other types of organizations and i mean i think it's good so whatever the people that are running the economic policy institute i guess what i'm trying to say are not like antagonistic to capitalism um they you know they want a stronger welfare state or they want higher wages and that's great but they're not like communists or something so anyways the economic policy institute though they kind of talk about uh they point to monopsony in terms of like the disparity between productivity and wages and like how productivity has grown, but wages have not grown. They haven't caught up with productivity. So um, in a pretty recent thing from the Economic Policy Institute, they say that productivity and pay once climbed together. So there's a time when they kind of like, you know, were are in tandem. Productivity would go up and then wages would go up too. But in recent decades, they write, uh, productivity and pay have diverged. Net productivity grew 59.7% from 1979 to 2019 while typical workers' compensation grew by 15.8%. So um, if uh, – oh, sorry. They go on to say this. If median hourly compensation had grown the same rate over the 1979 to 2019 period, the median worker would be making $9 more per hour. So I think it's this is important because, like, it kind of shows you how illusory, like, wages actually are. Um they they don't have anything to do with how productive a person actually is. It, it just has to do with how much um, how much a corporation wants to set their wages at. <laughs> and I think and like that, that's kind of all there is to it, right? And it has to do with what a corporation wants their wages at because that's the power that corporations have over the labor market. Um, it's it's part of that monopoly, right? It's the other the other half of the the monopoly puzzle. Uh, it's it's a monopoly on the consumer side and it's a monopoly on the labor on the worker
1: side. And as we'll see too, Brian and Sweezy talk about how there's a huge problem when productivity grows and uh, workers' compensation doesn't. It creates a big problem in the economy at large. It's a recipe for stagnation. People can't afford to buy the things that they're making, so there's too much stuff, too much productivity, too much surplus, and not enough ways to absorb that surplus um, in ways that kind of keep the economy moving. So it it results in stagnation, inflation, all kinds of big problems. And in fact, lots of problems that we're dealing with uh, as a result of the pandemic, although in some different ways. So we'll we'll talk more about that uh, in the next episode, too. But I think it's helpful to recognize that, like, (laughs) this is the result in part of ideology for sure, that capitalists recognize that they have control over the labor market and it is a market that they can, you know, set the prices for. Um, but it also ends up kind of shooting them in the foot because capitalism is an economic system prone to crisis and prone to self-destruction, and it's constantly kind of booming and busting uh, all the time. So I think that that's an important piece as well, that capitalists pursue these things in their own kind of short-term interests, right? Uh, Saving money by keeping the cost of labor low, but that move ends up... uh, really being a problem for all of us and uh, a good reason why we need to get rid of it (laughs) and do something different
0: (laughs) for sure. Okay. So there you go, folks. This is the first installment of the monopoly capital series. Uh, You've heard it all here. You now have a better understanding of how capitalism works and uh, how uncompetitive it is. I guess that's the theme of this episode, right? That capitalism is uncompetitive and, uh, that's not exactly why it's bad, but it is definitely a big part of why it's bad. I mean, even <laughs> if capitalism was competitive, I still wouldn't be a fan. <laughs> but, when it was, it was very, very bad. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> right. Now just bad in a different way. Um, but uh, it's helpful to kind of get this stuff out on the table, though, because then you start to see the ways that – I think that you start to see the power that corporations have not only over consumers and markets but also over workers.
1: And I think that's bad. You know what? I have to agree. So you've got the Ber- the Beran and Sweezy take, and now you've got the Detlef and Bernico take. Uh, their take took like 300 pages to make with lots of charts. Our take just takes uh, a few minutes. It's simply, uh, it's bad.
0: <laughs> well, I agree with both, but um, ours is uh, ours is to the point, and that's something. It's important. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Magnificast. You can get an invite to our great, exclusive, cool, secret Discord chat, and it's fun, and we're having a great time over there. We just made a new channel just for, just for the Catholics, just for the Catholics out there to talk about their popes and their secret things.
1: The Papist chat they're. is real. We're talking about what day Epiphany <laughs> really is today. It's, it's really out there.
0: <laughs> I I need to make sure I mute that chat in particular cuz I don't need to know the secrets. I need to make sure I I stay in the dark. <laughs> no. Don't let any any of these secrets slip to me. That would be bad.
1: You're going to have to um, make your own uh, episcopal chat and it's going to be the Washington channel.
0: Oh no. <laughs> that's true. Um it'll be lots of conversations about how you can talk people into being in just one more church committee. Uh that's what it'll, <laughs> it'll all be about. Um anyways, it's a fun community of people. Uh, I like that a lot, and uh, you can also get access to our Behind the Paywall podcast that we've not recorded a new episode for in just a little bit, but we'll get there. Don't worry. In the new year, we're going to be on top of it, um, and it's fun, too. Um, okay. Subscribe on Patreon. Get all these great things. Support some people like us. Not like Support us, specifically. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, that'd be great. We'd appreciate it. Okay. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by Theological Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. We'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods
1: up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late, oh, don't mind it cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would've